welcome to Do the Right Thing, your weekly writing prompt podcast. I'm Alexandra. And I'm Jarvis. Jarvis and I are currently on trial for witchcraft and are about to be burned unless we write appropriate letters to the Inquisition. However, we're having trouble writing those as we are currently suffering from heart attacks. Mm-hmm. So to steady our hearts and write the proper paper, we need to have fine examples. So we are issuing a challenge. Each week you sit down and write a complete short story using three or four randomly generated words. Then we come on the podcast, we read the story, we talk about what we learned in reading it, and then we talk about stories sent in by you wonderful listeners. Bada bing, bada boom, you have it right. We're simply here to help you do the right thing. A doof media Production. Well, um, today is a special day. It is. It's it is. Doof the right thing. It's the auspicious finally. on the auspicious number of ninety three, which mm-hmm. is totally perfectly well, round. You know what? You know what? I'm reclaiming the number ninety three as an important number. Okay, mm, it's nine yes. and then three. Those are that's such a good divisible by three numbers. I love yeah, divisible I mean, by three, three numbers. Three is the magic number, and nine. Is just three times three, so that's like exactly magic it's squared. Perfect. And then, yeah. and then, additionally, additionally, right? Nine plus three. This is this is a real quick rule for you to find out uh, if something's divisible by three. You just add all the digits together, and if it's if that number is divisible by three, it's divisible by three. So mm. uh, nine plus three is twelve, right? And twelve yeah. is divisible by three. And also, twelve is one plus two. Guess what that is? It's three. Ninety-three is a great number. Exactly. So, on our wonderful 93rd episode, which is so special and lucky, we are proud to bring y'all another amazing head-to-head Doof the Right Thing contest. Uh, that's right. So, this is the uh, the, the episode where we'll be um, reading and talking about the top two winners from Doof the Right Thing contest, as well as talking uh, about those third-place winners. I'm really excited to go into these stories. They're, they're absolutely wonderful. So, this is going to be a bit of a longer episode. Uh, so. Quite. I think we just want to get right into it. Well, all right. So so the first story we are going to be talking about and reading, and also the second place winner for this competition, is The Chess Machine by Matt Sedwards. That's right. Um, okay, let's just, uh, let's just get on rolling. All right, let's get it. So this is The Chess Machine by Matt Sedwards. Author's note, this is a work of creative nonfiction. While I have held to facts as they are known, some content is a product of my imagination. Jose Raul Capablanca dons his winter coat in fedora. Stepping into the dim and cold Manhattan air, he turns his collar up to block against the unseasonably bitter wind. Shoving one hand in a coat pocket, he hails a taxi with the other from beneath the street lamp. A yellow Ford with a checkered runner pulls up to the curb, and he climbs into the rear passenger seat. 100 Central Park South, he says to the driver, removing his hout and setting it on the seat beside him. On the seat is a newspaper. The article on top tells the readers of the war the Japanese drew America into four months prior. The driver turns on the meter and pulls away from the curb without a reply. Capablanca ignores the paper and looks out his window and past the endless rows of buildings to a horizon that only exists in Manhattan residents' imaginations. He considers a conversation from yesterday. Mr. Capablanca, your hypertension is dangerously high. You need to take measures to reduce anxiety and stress wherever possible. 
and it would be high, should be high. The condition Rand and his family, after all, had for generations. His father, a retired Spanish army officer, died from a heart attack in their home in Havana. The drinking was the icing on the cake at this point. Not to mention the courts coming down on him from a suit filed by his ex-wife. That'll be twenty cents, the cabbie says, glancing at his passenger in the rearview mirror. Reining in his thoughts and snugging his hat down, Capablanca fishes a pair of dimes and a nickel from his pocket and hands them to the driver. Hunching his shoulders, he emerges into a biting wind blowing in across Central Park. Holding his hat with one hand, he opens the door to the Manhattan Chess Club. Stepping through the door and into the sea of blue cigarette smoke, he is greeted with acknowledgments from several other members engaged in casual chess games. Seated at a table near the fireplace is Dr. Eli Muskowitz, a decent enough player, but by no means great. Still, a good man and delightful conversationalist, his secular mouth ran everlastingly, keeping him in trouble with the Catholics up the road. The doctor, currently engaged in a traditional chess game with no clock, looks decidedly uneasy. Mr. Capablanca, good of you to join us. Tell me, how should I end this wretched game? I'm getting picked to pieces by this schoolboy. The boy was young, perhaps 16, and was up seven points on the good doctor. Capablanca takes a moment to study the board, sees his move, takes hold of the doctor's king, lays it down before him. What on earth did you do that for? The doctor asks, writing his king. There must be a strategy that only you can see. Come now, he said with a grin. How do I serve this lad his defeat? Sorry, my friend, Capablanca says. I'm afraid he has you in three, and proceeds to explain. The boy's rook takes your pawn. Check. Now you must move your king to the corner. Do you see it? His rook then moves to d1, placing you in check. Your only move now is the bishop to f1, blocking the rook. And finally, rook takes bishop. Checkmate. All throughout his explanation, the boy is nodding matter-of-factly. Well, hell, I suppose I knew it was hopeless when this trickster scooped up my king's bishop so early and uncontested. What do you say, my young tormentor? Shall we play another? Without waiting for a reply, the doctor sets his cigarette in the ashtray beside him and begins setting the pieces back in their starting positions. While they reset, Capablanca goes to remove his coat. Say, young man, would you mind helping me with my coat? I can't seem to free my arm, just... The words stopped dead in his throat. At that moment, walking through the door to the Manhattan Chess Club, is Alexander Alekhine, the current world champion. The room goes silent. Capablanca, now rooted to the spot, is rendered speechless. He can feel his heart dance dangerously behind his ribs. For a moment, he is swept back to Buenos Aires in 1927. Jose Capablanca, also known as the Chess Machine, is sitting calmly and looking confident before a precocious Russian man dressed in formal brown attire with polished bronze buttons. His blonde hair is neatly combed to one side, his hard features set and unyielding. Alexander Alekhine extends a hand across the table and shakes with the standing world champion, then reaches out and starts the Chess Machine's clock. The first man to win six games takes the championship. The match is long, very long. At the end of Game 7, Capablanca leads with two wins, with Games 11 and 12 going to Alekhine with a heretofore unseen display of late-game prowess. 
Games 13 through 28 all end in draws, with the exception of Game 21, Point Alakine. Capablanca takes Game 29. Game 32 goes to the Russian, putting him within striking distance of the title. Near the end of Game 34, Alakine, with a deft move of his queen, forces Capablanca on the defensive, allowing Alakine to whittle away Capablanca's remaining pieces. The Cuban-American resigns on move 82, stripping him of his title. The final tally is Alakine 6, Capablanca 3, and 25 draws. Since the matchup almost 15 years ago, Capablanca sought to rematch under better conditions, eager to reclaim the title. Alakine had made half-hearted attempts at another face-off, but nothing ever came of them. Some claimed that Alakine was deliberately avoiding the chess machine. Others labeled Capablanca a fool for playing the Russian without any preparation, citing hubris. Now, in the Manhattan Chess Club, he watches as Alakine crosses the room and seats himself at a table near the doctor and young man. The Manhattan Chess Club is utterly silent. Capablanca can hear his heart hammering in his ear. So, you finally accept my demand for a rematch. I suppose you'd want to lose here in front of as few eyes as possible. I'm here to say that it's, that is precisely what will happen, Alakine. Oh, how he has wished for this moment. Wished and not feared. He is, after all, the chess machine. He takes the seat across from the Russian, his nemesis since that day in Argentina, and shakes his hand. With a deep, calming breath, Capablanca starts the clock. Alakine is playing white. Beginning with the queen's gambit opening, and Capablanca denies with his pawn to e6. Knights move out, followed by bishops. White pins Capablanca's knight with a bishop. No matter. White castles first, followed shortly by Capablanca. Twenty moves in reveal that their positions are even. Mr. Capablanca, your hypertension is dangerously high. Focusing with all his will, Capablanca refuses to allow his concentration to wander from the game for even a moment. In an effort to isolate one of his opponent's pawns, he offers one of his own as bait, but White does not fall for it, pilfering the offered pawn with a knight instead. He catches the scent of something then, a cigar among the cigarettes, a Cuban cigar, one he recognizes, one his father used to smoke when they played chess in their home in Havana. He smiles, remembering his father attempting an illegal move. He had called him on it, winning his first ever game of chess. Mr. Capablanca, no, keep focus. Don't let him get away again. They open a lane on the C-file. White takes control with a rook to C1. They exchange their last bishops and continue positioning their defenses, never letting the other within striking distance. Then... The Russian takes hold of his queen and speaks his first words since entering the Manhattan Chess Club. Queen to A5. The words seem to echo through the room, like a proclamation from God himself. Capablanca gapes at the board. No, it, it cannot be, he stammers. This mustn't, this, this is a trick. This is a trick, he shouts, eyes pinned on the pale queen. The chess machine, never one to review previous games, cannot help but recall this move. He had long wished to forget it, wishes it even now. It had haunted him for fifteen years, 
It is the move that marked the end of his final game in Argentina. Mr. Capablanca. He blinks, tearing his eyes from the white witch of his nightmares and meets his opponent's eyes. It isn't victory or gloating he sees there, however, but sadness. Genuine and open sadness, startling in its vulnerability. As if linked, both turn their heads to where the doctor and young man were spectating, but they are gone. Everyone is gone. The chess club is gone. He turns back and the Russian is gone. He looks down and he is gone as well. Now, by the dim and warm light of a kerosene lamp, a man in a blue uniform and black boots, his officer's hat hanging from his knee, is seated before a plainly carved set of wooden chess pieces. Across from him is a boy, no more than four years old, with dark and intelligent eyes. You can't move there, Papa, says the boy. Observing him for a moment, the man nods, conceding the game, and hands the boy his king. He accepts the offered piece and delicately runs his finger across the cross atop it and smiles. Muy bien, hijo. Hora de acostarse, the man says. He then stands and walks into the pressing darkness, his heavy footfalls fading to nothing. His son, José Raúl Capablanca, the chess machine, follows. The account that follows is a report from Mount Sinai Hospital on March 8, 1942. José Raúl Capablanca was admitted at 10 p.m. on March 7th. The patient was in a deep coma and exhibiting signs of extreme hypertension. Dr. Eli Muskowitz was the first to respond and arrange for the ambulance. The patient was seen observing a chess game and asking for help removing his coat when he collapsed. Mr. Capablanca was declared dead at 6 a.m. on March 8, 1942. An autopsy revealed a hemophorage in the thalamus region of the brain. It is the opinion of this physician that the patient may have hallucinated during this episode due to the location of the stroke in the brain. Reinforcing this hypothesis, witnesses report the patient speaking to someone named Alec Hine, who was not in attendance. Well, all right. Uh, a fantastic story by you, Matt said words. Um, I really love this story. I mean, I was a huge fan of uh, the first uh, entrance that we got on do the right thing. And I think going from that one to, to this version, the biggest change that I've really seen is just the clarity in the ideas, in the um, intention, and uh, a, a lot of reason why's for the um, flashbacks. I remember in the first one, I did really appreciate these uh, flashbacks because we are getting so much more about this main character, but it didn't really have a place in the first version. But going into this one, everything feels so natural. And I, and I really, really love this sort of air that you were trying to capture in this um, chess club. And it really makes me feel like I am there. Mm. Um, I'm pretty sure you, you have already kind of caught on to this, but this story reminds me a, a lot of uh, many scenes from the Queen's Gambit. 
uh, and just <laughs> the sort of air of class in these um, uh, in these uh, chess clubs and sort of how people act with with each other and the sort of respect a um, good player gets. So yeah, I mean, I I love the um, the um, first version. I think this. And and I think this second version is just showing me why I love the first one so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so there's there's you know several things I I really like in here. I really like how um, these all every character, even the characters that don't speak. Uh, you kind of get their full breadth of uh, personality real quick, mm-hmm. especially like <coughs> the doctor. You really can tell who he is, right? <laughs> um, you know, he's like a little bit indignant of of being bested by a schoolboy, but not like that indignant, right? He's just like, yeah. this is this. I, I'm 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 getting trounced over here. Um, Capablanca being, you know, he's he's sort of like retired and and uh, but but still extremely skilled. Um, but he's never gotten over that, that defeat. Um, and then, uh, even, I mean, like even the the schoolboy, like he's barely in here at all. And yet you can kind of just imagine just following along with those tropes of just like the, um, humble, extremely talented young person, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The prodigy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, I really like the, the, the style that, that this goes, um, through of, Mm -hmm. of how this is sort of done in uh in a present tense um one uh, i'm not <laughs> i'm not sure how much is like additions and how much is just like i'm paying more attention to it this time yeah but the um sort of repeated uh intercession of the uh mr capablanca your hypertension is dangerously high oh, you need to take measures great. to reduce anxiety forward. and stress wherever po- possible yeah and i love how it like shortens as mm-hmm. it um as it goes um, and I think it's done really, really well. And it's it sort of, it's like, you know exactly what's going to be happening this entire time. It, it's, it's very obviously set up in sort of that like repeated drum beat, just, um, I don't know. It just, it just makes it a lot stronger. And, um, mm-hmm. oh yeah, definitely. I mean, really this story is just so, so clean. I can tell you were cutting so much fat. I can tell you were paying a lot more attention to every line because it flows Mm -hmm. so so well and i really do like how much more i feel uh connected to this main character and uh, how he is pushing the story forward more so than he was in the first entry and i just really think that sort of subtle change of really starting to focus a a lot more on these moments and not so much the bigger picture is what really makes this this story so special and what and what really changes this this story from something that feels like a draft to something that i can see finding somewhere on the web you know like mm-hmm. like, yeah. like i mean i can see place. yeah yeah and, and i mean like i can see when when we are looking for the like next story to do on um do the right thing us coming across this because it's very clean and it, and it does have that air of professionalism that i really really love yeah um let's let's talk about a little bit the um just what we can learn from this as if this was uh any other story that we we brought to uh to the podcast um i think uh th- what's interesting here is that there's 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 kind of a lot being set up mm-hmm. right um there is 
um, there's a lot of there's a lot of moving pieces for this one meaning, right? There is the uh, currency that it's in, which is the, probably the, the the simplest and, and most straightforward to set up. But then there's also the stuff with Alakine, right? This rivalry and uh, all the feelings he has, right? Um, the, there's of course also the um, uh, heart problems as a small background factor, and then there's mm-hmm. also the um, scene with uh, his father, right? And all of this has to be weaved together to have that emotional Juggled. beat at the yeah. end where we know he's having a heart attack. We know he's having to accept his loss um, finally. And um, thinking about his father in that in that first chess game, we need all of that to come together to mm-hmm. have that um, emotional beat. And I think uh, this does it really well. I think one thing is that it, it spaces them out pretty well with them. Um, the beat about hyper about the hypertension sort of tying them Mm -hmm. together yeah definitely definitely and and i mean really like for a story that seems so busy like i mean as you said there's so much going on you have to worry about all of these characters his own heart condition and for and for all of that to be happening in these uh to be happening in the same story i think this story is definitely a great example on how even though your own story could seem very busy like like there are a lot of moving parts it is very possible to put all of those parts in this uh in in the same machine and have it run so i mean overall i think that if we take anything uh, away from this story it's that you can juggle so so many things as long as you keep it focused as long as you make sure that everything that is happening is re- is relating to your main character in a sig- uh, in a significant way yeah um i think it's rather impressive that um yeah, all these things that are are woven together so mm-hmm. uh, so well um and i think that yeah that's definitely something to learn from in in matt said words uh pieces just uh, looking at how these things are are spaced out and also kept mm-hmm. uh, kept engaging right there's this um we we replay uh the original match um against Alekhine where there is um how how many matches uh, um, 30, 30 something 34 yeah. i think 34 games which is ludicrous i i i'm betting that this is actually kind of like what happened because this is a real event um, yeah but it's it's done nice and it's told quickly enough that we don't get bored even though we're talking about a lot of like game number 34 number 13 or whatever like over and over um it's done in a in a dynamic way with a with a push and pull um that that keeps it interesting and the same thing happens later on when we're replaying um when we're playing this last match Mm -hmm. um where it's by tying in the stuff about the the hypertension and also tying in um the memory of uh his his father um that it can be kept interesting and um still have the emotional tension follow the plot tension Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah this is a wonderful story and um i i am glad it won as well yeah definitely definitely 
Well, all right. Thank you so much, Matt, uh, Matt said words for uh, sending your story into the doof, the, the right thing contest. It, it was a real treat to uh, see what you uh, did with it, how it changed from your first draft to, to however many drafts you uh, made uh, up until what we see here right, right now. But thank you very much for um, submitting. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's now prime time to move on to our first place story by Calanero985 with the Reaper and the Dancer. Yeah, uh, let's get into it. Sure. This is the Reaper and the Dancer by Calanero985. The guards didn't step away when Tyrus approached the door. He almost faltered, but let none of his emotions surface. Instead, Tyrus simply strode up to the two men and stopped, standing with his hands folded behind his back and an eyebrow expectantly raised. The guards exchanged a glance. A young man Tyrus remembered appointing when the lad had barely danced his first hay circle, swallowed. Mr. Mayor, he said. We've been guarding. An excellent job you've done. C Cyril, was it? Cyril gave a shaky nod, and, and Tyrus flashed a smile. I appreciate it, but I'm visiting the prisoner. You're relieved while I do so. The other guard, Mangum, cleared his throat. He was approaching fifty, not too much younger than Tyrus himself. I don't know if that's a good idea, sir, he said gently. Considering... Tyrus turned a withering gaze on him, one that had seen him through countless council meetings and tedious functions. To Mangum's credit, he only paled slightly. You have nothing to worry about, Tyrus said coolly. I am taking a moment of privacy with my daughter. You may wait at the end of the hall. It wasn't a request. The door creaked open as the guards walked away with the key. Tyrus stared into the shadows. The bare stone carried the sound of every footstep and breath, but the cell was silent. He had expected to hear ragged breaths, sobs, something at his approach. Instead, there was nothing. He stepped into the silence feeling like an intruder. It set his teeth on edge. Marissa, he said. Are you all right? As his eyes adjusted to the darkness, he saw her in the corner, sitting on the floor. She was wearing the dress he'd given her for last year's harvest. It was stained, worn, and tattered at the sleeves. Marissa had hardly fared better herself. There were no bruises or cuts or any sign of mistreatment. Tyrus picked his men better than that. But her hair was matted, her face dirty. The circles under her eyes were dark and deep. Worst off were her hands. She had been placed in a set of devil locks, an intricate metal tangle built to stop any hell touched from working their magics. It twisted around her hands, winding through her fingers and forcing them into odd angles. They were said to be uncomfortable for an hour and maddening for a day. Tyrus's will almost gave then and there. He forced himself to stand straight when he looked at her and saw her looking back with her mother's blue eyes. He'd expected tears, or begging. Instead, she seemed to be waiting for him. His prepared words escaped him, and he sighed. 
What have you done, Marissa? He said quietly. What have you done? She straightened her back, giving no sign of discomfort. I've done nothing wrong, father, she said. This is all a terrible mistake. His stomach twisted. Nothing wrong, he said hollowly. Witchcraft is a mortal sin, Marissa. They burn people for this. I wasn't doing witchcraft, she said calmly, as though they were discussing the weather. I just said the things in the tree were mine. Stuff I found and didn't know what to do with. I had no idea it was dangerous. He ground his teeth at the false lightness in her voice. Those books weren't yours, he said, voice rumbling. I would have known. The priest said there were traces of rituals in the woods. You haven't been out there in weeks. Who? She pursed her lips and looked toward the window. If those items belong to someone else, she said slowly, then I can see why that might be a problem, especially someone from out of town with no friends or powerful relatives. That kind of person might have gotten real trouble. Better that they left town instead. Tyrus blinked. The wheels turned and his fists clenched. Those traveling swindlers, he whispered. Those charlatans? They were curio merchants, Marissa said. Not that I would know anything else about them. The blatant lie had Tyrus seeing red, as if Marissa hadn't visited their wagon every day the past week, coming home and blathering on about their trinkets and how worldly they were and the stories they told. You've done this, he said hoarsely, to protect a few infernal merchants? They're not infernal, she said hotly. They follow the old gods, father, like many here used to before the church. That doesn't mean they deal with devils. It doesn't matter now. They're gone, and I'll be taking the blame. Tyrus swallowed, speechless. Marissa looked at him like she'd cornered him in crowns. All he could think of was how young she was. Not even seventeen. What do you think happens now? He asked quietly. How do you think this goes? You've been branded a witch. I know, she said. This is an embarrassment for you, father, and, and I'm sorry. I'll hang my head in public. I'll be contrite. I won't resist. But it's better for me to take a slap on the wrist than for some poor travelers to face the stake. Slap on the wrist! The words erupted. She flinched for the first time, and it brought Tyrus a sick satisfaction. Yes, this is real. You should be listening to me. Are you listening now? But the sensation was replaced by shame and fear. You don't understand what you've done. She was listening now. Tyrus had her attention, and the weight was unbearable. It was his turn to look away, to focus instead on the two moons that were just visible through the window bars. The dancer was now near full, with the crescent reaper following slowly behind. A chase that some said would continue forever, and others said would end with the death of the world. Word has traveled, Tyrus said, his voice dead. 
The church doesn't trust my judgment when it comes to you, not since your mother passed. They sent word this morning. An inquisitor is coming. He saw Marissa start and knew that she understood. That even a girl her age knew what it meant for the church to send such a person, the most red-handed of their killers. I will have no say what happens to you, he said. Inquisitors have burned villages for less than spellbooks, Marissa. Even if they believe you, they won't look kindly on you helping others escape their justice. They'll call you a witch. They'll burn you. Silence filled the stone chamber again, and Tyrus forced himself to look his daughter in the eye. He owed her that much. It was the moment he had feared most, the moment when when she broke down, realized what was going to happen to her, begged him to help when he could do nothing. Marissa's eyes welled, her chin trembled. Then she blinked, wiped her eyes, and looked up at him. So be it, she whispered. Tyrus had been prepared for anything else. He rushed to her and knelt, grabbing her by the shoulders. The impact nearly knocked her over. So be it! He roared. What's the matter with you, girl? Don't you understand? They're going to kill you. His grip tightened enough that he knew it must have been hurting her. He couldn't stop himself. Tears were rolling down his cheeks. This is going to happen, and I can't stop it. She had started crying too, but didn't falter. Instead, she gave a weak, shaky smile. I understand, she said. This isn't me fooling myself that you'll save me, Father. I know what the church does. Her voice hardened. I'm saying I don't regret it. They're murderers. They hunt anyone with a trace of old blood in them and string them up from trees. Anyone who questions them, flogged. Anyone who studies the old ways or has a drop of magic in them, they burn. She swallowed. They're monsters. If we stand by and let them kill, we're just as bad. So, yes, I'm glad it's me. I'm glad it's me. Me and not a whole family that can't protect themselves. I can't help you, Tyrus whispered. I can't stop them, Marissa. You know what happens to towns that buck the church. I wasn't asking you to, she said, confused. But it wasn't her that he was speaking to. It was the awful doubt and fear that plagued him ever since the church officials had arrived. If I lifted a hand to save you, he said, dozens would die. Hundreds. More. I'm sorry, she said, and her voice caught. I, I don't want to leave you alone, Daddy. I'm scared. I'm so scared. I don't want to die. She shook in his arms, and Tyrus thought she wouldn't go on. But I wouldn't want to live if it meant that the whole family got burned instead. Tyrus looked at her as if for the first time. Marissa was his daughter, but a reflection. An image more pure than the worldly thing that cast it. The moon dancing on the water.
In her words were the lessons he had taught her, things he had said but never had the strength to do. He wished that he had been a more selfish man, a more cowardly one, one who hadn't thought it so important to make his daughter a better person than he was. I'll be back, he whispered. Soon. Her eyes were wide as he left the room. Mangum and Cyril approached, looking troubled. Tyrus didn't care what they had heard. He only cared that looking at them, he saw loyal men. Men who had grown up with him, owed their careers to him. But more importantly, they knew him as a good man. Someone whose orders they would follow. And to battle, if necessary. But was it? Marissa's words rang in Tyrus's head. Refusing the Inquisitor would spit in the face of the church. Invite retribution. War. Instead of trading one family's life for hers, he would trade hundreds. What else had she said? That to stand by and allow murder was to make yourself complicit? Wasn't that still true? It had been for decades. How long was the archive of sins they had allowed the church to commit through their compliance? Did the fact that he only saw it now, when it was his, when it was his daughter at stake, make it any less true? Tyrus turned to face the guards. The silent cell door remained open behind him. The shadows of the bars chased each other across the floor, mirroring the dance of the moons in the sky. He spoke, and sealed the deaths of thousands. So yeah, this is a fantastic story that um, really had some uh, really nice twists in there. Uh, I think this story is ripe with this really strong world, with this really strong world building that is brought about us following this character of um, Tyrus, as uh, he is going to uh, see his his daughter, who who of course uh, has dabbled in this sort of uh, witchcraft. And I mean, overall, I I really in I really enjoy from from this story the blatant the blatant connection we are getting between this main character and his daughter i mean and i mean really during the excuse me during the second half when i mean you are reading that dialogue it is very uh apparent the worry that this um that this main character has for uh his daughter and i mean even at the and I mean, even at the very end, we we are sort of left with this idea that he will do anything to to really free his uh, daughter from this fate. So I mean, it's a great great ride, and I mean, through and through, I was I was hooked. I was I was enjoying it, but I mean, above all else, I was left wanting more in the best way. Yeah, um, I think this uh, story is really beautiful between. Um, this this father and daughter, um, and I, I I love that conflicted emotion that he has about, you know, I, I mean that journey of sort of like accepting and um, deciding to sort of be inspired by her, but the like anger at her for doing the right thing, um, <laughs> no pun intended, <laughs> because it, it doesn't work as a pun, but. Um, uh, yeah, the, the anger at her for doing the right thing and knowing that it's, like, his fault for in, instilling these virtues and, and 
but it also being proud of her at the same time. It's such a wonderful, you know, messy cocktail of, of emotions there. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I think it's really, really well executed. You know, there, there's parts in this where uh, I definitely felt emotion welling up in me, um, ready to, to spout out as, as he's just shocked and, and um, you know, so twisted up about the the situation um and then there's also plenty of other emotions that are in here that are like so relatable like the whole there's a the section where he reveals to her what you know the actual consequences are right he she says that uh, she is better that she gets a slap on the wrist than um you know a family get get burned and uh he says that no, the Inquisition is going to come and and, and burn you, and she, you know, is like, uh, she she takes that information and she's really surprised by it because she didn't expect that to happen. And mm-hmm. for a second, he's like, he feels like a like a twisted satisfaction about it, about like, yes, finally understand what you've what you've done and and the consequences, right? And he sort of like gets some enjoyment out of it, not you know in any way of like cruelly wanting to, but just because like when you're so mad at someone and they finally, you know, understand why you're yeah. angry at them, um, that feels really satisfying. So, and also I, I, I think it's, mm-hmm. it's definitely like the, the connection between father and daughter, him trying to make his daughter understand these, these things that seem to be well beyond her, her age, that you aren't invincible just because you are, a part of that family and i think he was definitely joyed that um she was hit with that realization yeah yeah um yeah so the, the relationship between them is so like nice and and complicated well one little thing i was like wanting to i i wonder how like the mom fits into this right because the mom True. is gone and yeah, I, I just wonder how she slots into the whole like uh, the emotions between the, the the two of them and stuff, and um, you know if if like this were to be continued, it's definitely something I would be interested in. I, I definitely understand why that wasn't in in this one, considering you know you only have two thousand words, yeah, and to, exactly. to complicate this this relationship even further <laughs> by adding a backstory about a mom, I think probably, I, yeah, I can definitely understand why why it didn't make it in there, but. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So one thing is, I yeah, I think this this the story, like the other one, is very efficient mm-hmm. of how you know we we run through so many emotions. In, in this one, there's not so many like different threads. It's one thread uh, going through and 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 changing. Yeah. Um, but, but this but, thread is mm-hmm. ripe with like darker and deeper emotions that I mean, through the attacks are, of course, portrayed very well and even to a certain extent understood by the reader yeah so i think like you you go through this one um and really all all of the the polished stories that were submitted that like every sentence and paragraph definitely feels like it it needs to be there um or else you'd have to cut out like a like a big section and, and lose a little bit of of meaning yeah um and that's really well done especially when you have all this you know world building stuff that um you know, oftentimes can feel you. You run the risk of like 
uh, it detracting from the meaning because it's just like interesting stuff that's more, mm-hmm. you know, for the long term. But everything in this one is very much needed for for the meaning. It's very important that the, the church is, um, you know, so oppressive and, um, you know, terrifying and, and that has all the stuff about um, its relationship with, with witchcraft and everything for you to get the full meaning of, um, of how it works here. of how you know these characters have to sort of take a sacrifice to stand up to oppression uh what like one little detail is you know the the stuff with the um the witch locks right the Mm, yeah i really like that section the uh, devil locks um that are the super cruel way to um uh prevent someone from from doing witchcraft and i think it's it's very clear that it's like intentionally cruel it's not like just to to stop someone from doing it it's also Mm -hmm. just to it's also a punishment i think it's very clear Mm -hmm. and i think that that informs a lot about how this world works and stuff so um yeah and and of course there's this this beautiful this meaning about how um you know doing the right thing is often you know extreme can be very costly and Mm -hmm. and painful and so I, i like how it's reflected in a different way it's not just a mirror of like oh in the same way that she sacrificed herself to save a family he's going to sacrifice himself to save her or something like that it's Mm -hmm. he's going to do a different sort of sacrifice and sacrifice the like lives of his of his loyal people to rebel against it um exactly and it's interesting how mm -hmm, go ahead oh well yeah and i mean on that point i think with that in in place, this this story does ask a lot of really great questions. Like, what is the uh, what is the cost? Is it worth doing the right thing when you're faced with these harsh consequences? And and like and like, how far is too far to right a wrong? And I mm-hmm. and I really do like how this story subtly asks those those questions. Without really leading us towards a towards a direction to an answer, it's just more so filling out this this world that is being built really really well here. Yeah, um, and, and I I do like the like added question that I think is started is starting to be posed at the at the end here, and it it feels clear like if this was a longer you know thing that because um, this this does. It, it very much works as a as a short story, but it also very much feels like it's a setup for something longer, right? This longer mm-hmm. conflict, um, like a it does feel like a first chapter yeah. that, um, you know, it would wrestle with the question of like, it's one thing to sacrifice yourself for others; it's another thing to ask others to sacrifice themselves for a, another cause, mm-hmm. right? And and how you can do that ethically, and and how does that compare, and stuff like that. Um, and because because I think there's the other motivation. He's not just doing this for his daughter. I mean, it's a big motivation to do this for his daughter. That's definitely like the reason why he would do it now than another time. But like he would also be doing this to stop the oppression of the church in general, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just to um, save his daughter. It's to also save other people like his daughter, right? Yeah. But um, there's still some some part of it that is done in a, in a selfish way and i think that's an interesting thing to look at and wonder about um yeah yeah so i mean really overall this this is a very focused story 
Uh, all of the fat is trimmed very nicely to where we are really able to connect to these characters and to connect to this situation which which at face value is so foreign to us and i think that's really just a testament to the uh, accomplishment of writing this story mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it's it's very it's it's gripping pulls you all the way through and um yeah the the, the way that the emotions are brought out of this relationship i know i know i'm repeating myself a lot but mm-hmm. i i think it's it's very very well done and i think looking at how um kellenero 95 um writes the the emotions of this father and um how they they come through in both his words and the the description um his own narration i think is definitely something to to look at and um to take notes from yeah definitely definitely so great great job Kalanero 985 and thank you so much for uh submitting this fantastic piece to the doof the right thing contest uh all right i think it is I think it's high time for us to move on into our third place winners where uh, it was uh, actually a tie, which is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the last time we had a tie between first place, I think, and this time we have a tie between uh, third place. So it's, <laughs> I feel like we're getting set up for a pattern here. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's really cool. So we're, we're not going to read them all the way through. Um, we don't want this podcast to be you know, three hours long. <laughs> We've done our share of those already. Uh, but we, yeah, we do want to talk about these in, in, in depth a bit. Exactly. So the first one we, we will be talking about is Clean Thoughts by Captain Rhino. Uh, I remember when this was first sent in. I, I really, really liked it for its very interesting world building. And very much so how we are thrown into this Black Mirror-esque um, mm-hmm. situation and this story definitely does raise a um, lot of questions and I mean yeah, so yeah no, go ahead sorry just to just to very quickly summarize it just to, yeah, yeah, for, yeah. for those who don't remember when we covered it before um, in this story um, a uh, couple come in uh, Kareem and, and Luke um, to get their thoughts uh, cleaned up to, to make them socially hygienic and sort of a uh, consensual uh, reprogramming, brainwashing to mm-hmm. make sure that they are that they fit in and can succeed in a mainstream society. That's actually very negative, but um, you know, being aware of how bad it is, it makes you very unhappy and and you don't succeed because you are trying to uh, work against that system rather than with it and perpetuating it. And so, um, yeah, uh, that's that's what the story is about, and I, th- I think it's of, of course it's really well done, and of course it's such an interesting you know premise and and question to work with. Um, I think that's like a, a big deal in this, but it's also really well portrayed, right? You, you, in addition to both of those um, you know characters, one who's already done it, another character who is currently like struggling with it, but is kind of like giving in to the system here. You mm-hmm. also have that the um, the attendant that works there, and as an added little. I don't know if twist is the right word, but um, um, I, I, I guess twist, but not in the like twist ending sense. Yeah. You know, a twist of like um, 
of adding another layer to mm-hmm. to this problem that they also had the social reprogramming now they're they're perpetuating it even more literally here yeah definitely yeah and i mean really i think this story is filled with these really strong moments i mean beyond just the just the concept and uh, beyond this like this like really good dialogue one of my favorite moments is uh when the is when one of the main characters kareem i think um is basically going through why they they believe that they do um want this sort of re this sort of reprogramming and i mean through that entire through that entire explanation we are we are not only getting really cool bits about this this world but we are also understanding more so why why people might want to go to go through this process and why uh kareem specifically would would want to do it because it seems like this this because it seems like for for him this isn't done just out of like oh this is the like right thing to do it seems more so that he is choosing to go through this because he has given up hope that the mm-hmm. world will change in in his favor and i mean i think there are a lot of great questions and um things to to really think about that that uh, comes out of that moment and this story overall yeah i i think it's a really great piece of of science fiction like in the most um like this is very much a fulfillment of that genre of the point mm-hmm. of that genre um and, and it's you know it's super relevant you know yeah it's it's a, it's a just a great question to pose of like if if giving in to the to the system and and perpetuating it is you know if you're suffering under the system but giving in could make your position a lot better and and make you suffer a lot less you know is it still ethical to do that is it still okay yeah. to do that and i think this this story is definitely pointing out the the horror in selling out in that way mm-hmm. definitely definitely but a uh, fantastic job captain rhino thank you so much for uh sub for submitting your story to the to the doof the right thing contest and um, our final doof the doof the right thing contest sub submission we will be talking about this week is is disconnect by haunt of the heron. That's right. Um, so this is that um, story with the ever expanding city mm-hmm. where people have to. Um, there's a group of seven people with presumably other people out here in this in this vast. Um, impossibly huge uh landscape of of city that um they go to sleep together uh tied together by string but by the morning they are already five kilometers apart um with that distance between them expanding even further over time and they have to uh bike to get together every night so they can you know not be alone Mm -hmm. and then of course um he encounters one of uh, one of the the people, one of the seven people left in in their own world, basically, uh, and she's broken her leg, and he has to leave her behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I really enjoyed this um, entry. It it feels very different from the first version that we read all those weeks ago, uh, and I think it's because this starts from a lot more playful place in the beginning and then as we keep going we uh get more and more of this sort of world building 
Um, and I think really the strength of this piece is its focus and its uh, control. I mean, as we slowly get to know more, not only about this this main character, but this world, we are we are also moving through it. So I mean, there is there's there's this really nice motion that that you follow throughout this this story. Um, and I think towards towards the end, when the um, when the main character uh, in encounters the girl who um, whose leg was broken, I think that was a really strong moment. And you got so much from her character in that small moment that that, you know, so much about who she probably was throughout throughout most of this event. So I think there's this really nice work when it comes to a character being being done here uh, along with a really great grasp at this um concept and this world that is being built that's being built here so fantastic job all around um yeah so the I really, really liked the story, and I'm I'm not quite sure what genre actually would I would place this one in, but mm-hmm. I think there's a lot you could do to analyze it, and really like you know as you're going through this and this notion of like this ever expanding space that I think gets worse and worse over time, and sort of the inevitability of becoming utterly alone, yeah, <laughs> um, and, and holding on to these last few connections that you, you know you wouldn't even like these people if you if you had a choice right mm-hmm. um like like the the two characters we encounter here i think like reflecting on why you feel so horrible about this and why this concept is so terrifying uncomfortable mm-hmm. um i think is a really um a good good um way to 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 go um like it, I, yeah there's a there's a lot of ways you can analyze this like it can be of like what does what does this ever expanding city symbolize, right? Yeah. And I I I don't think like there is one intentional answer. I mean, Hunter the Heron can can disagree, but I I think there's <laughs> probably actually a lot of interpretations you could take, right? Going from something like, um, the endless like uh, consumerism and just yeah. like materialism of the world, just actually putting great distance between us, as we have to like get through so much stuff to get to another mm-hmm. person. It can or, be um, you know, the sort of uh, endless in dust industrialization that our world is continuing to mm-hmm. to go through. Yeah, or less, you know, um, worldly and or, or or like less literal, and you can view it like. As you get older, right, the the distances between people sometimes increase as you like mm-hmm. age and and grow further apart, and it's harder to hold on to those connections. True, and you have to like actually try really hard mm-hmm. to maintain those connections. And then so and then some of them you you might have to let go. Yeah, uh, as seen at the very end. So yeah, there's there's so much that you know you can really read into when it comes to this story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, all right. That is all of the stories for the Doof the the Right Thing contest. Thank you so much to everyone who did send in your your stories, and 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 thank you so much to our winners who who gave us fantastic stories that we have had an absolute joy reading. That's right, and and a couple other people to thank. I want to thank everyone who you know went and actually voted for these stories uh-huh. and, and and read for uh, read all those in the um that, that that were submitted um and um because without y'all obviously we wouldn't have a winner and, and this would be a lot uh we would have a what 11 way tie or whatever 
which would be a bit more difficult to uh to talk through but <laughs> just a bit <laughs> yeah and but i also want to thank every patron right it, without y'all we wouldn't have the money to do contests like this i mean we could do a contest like this but there wouldn't be there would only be the motivation of of just being read on the podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> um. It, we really like being able to give back to the community with with these cash prizes and stuff. And without y'all patrons, we wouldn't be able to do that. So yeah, thanks so much. So the next do the right thing contest, uh, the the due date for that is going to be on March fourteenth. So we are trying to make this quarterly, like we intended to originally <laughs> and utterly. We just we just didn't do that. Um. So that is going to be the the next due date, you know, uh, three months apart. Um, so technically, I guess it, it has already begun all of the um, word prompts between December 14th and, and March 14th are going to be eligible for uh-huh. um, the contest. But we won't actually be, you know, talking and promoting it until that, that last month before. That is when, like, it, like, starts, I guess. But really it's been going on it goes on the entire time so as you are writing stories um or considering writing stories between um now and and that due date in in march um but also i might the date might switch a little um but it'll be like that week mm-hmm. um yeah that you know depending on when we have the the podcast and stuff but um as as it goes on and then as the prompts come out, consider, you know, um, thinking about which stories you want to edit for that contest and, and consider getting ready for it. Um, I'm really excited to see what people make through in the next couple of months. And I'm really excited to see, um, you know, those those pieces get polished afterwards because uh, mm-hmm. I think they become so much more impressive after, you know, even a little bit of polish. Oh, definitely, definitely. So I'm looking so forward to uh, seeing what y'all come up with during the next Doof the Right Thing contest. But I think it is high time for us to roll into our listener-submitted stories for this week. First and foremost, the words for, for this week were athlete, fountain, attention, and eavesdrop. And... Also, the um, stories this this week were taking on the challenge of of pers- of of personification. That's right, and we saw some different uh, takes on that. Um, and so, um, I'm interested in, in looking at those. Actually, it was really it was really fun. This is one of those weeks where um, there's a lot of common elements mm-hmm. in all of the stories, even more so than usual. I, I think there's just something about fountains. I think that like <laughs> a lot has of people use strong it. like structural mm-hmm. themes, and so everyone who like had a fountain, um, there was there was echoes. Also, like there was multiple. Um, stories that had to do with um uh people with uh disabilities mm-hmm. in in various ways which is interesting to me considering that's not a word in in the in the prompt so it was just cool to see you know different echoes with each uh with within each story yeah yeah definitely definitely um well all right our first story for this week is by ace of sword with blood on the dance floor <laughs> Oh, what a what a fun this one is. Um, also, I think the username is really fitting for this one. I I feel like the the main character could be named Ace, Ace of Sword. Sword yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, this story uh, the, the the main character um, has a a sword. Her name is Susan. She and her sword are partners, right? And they are dancing, but she sort of is is addressing and and twisting that metaphor um, originally. You know, the idea that the sword's an extension of the body that. Um, and to her, the blade 
that she's wielding leads the dance. Um, it's the one that's guiding her through the fight, right? So that's mm-hmm. how it's characterized. And she's in this bar. She's fighting a bunch of people. She she kills everyone in the bar in this really, <laughs> you know, cool, you know, um, Quentin Tarantino. Um, yeah. Yeah. What, what are some other really cool fighting? I'm, I'm, I'm picturing those like long shot scenes oh, like in, in like, Daredevil. Um, like in um, <laughs> like an old boy. I haven't seen that movie. Okay, well, there is a very famous fight scene in um, Old Boy. So, for y'all listening who have who have watched Old Boy, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm sure they do. <laughs> um, so there's yeah, so it's, it feels very flow, flowing, and you can definitely you know tell why she's calling it a dance. Mm-hmm. Um, so she she kills the the last one in the bar, sits down to get a drink, and then someone appears and I think grabs her sword with a with a whip. Yeah, I think <laughs> which so. is a cool little. <laughs> thing very um, uh they, very uh catwoman-y yeah sure i i think that's an interesting word for that but um <laughs> so they they look at the sword and and they're like oh it's a magic sword right it's got a it's a subtle enchantment but um now that you don't have it you're vulnerable uh but she shakes her head and uh leans down and, and picks up the knife that one of her attackers from before was was wielding and she sort of addresses it it's thin and, and petite not as bold as a sword it would never be grateful uh, or graceful but she had an eye for talent and she knew that shyness was just holding it back from greatness mm-hmm. um this uh, she smiled and jumped down from her seat the stiletto nestled in her hand rising to the occasion it would lead this ne- next dance so here we could see that very much that like e- even though it really felt like oh it's particularly the sword that is leading the dance it's actually no this is just her relationship with every weapon yeah <laughs> um and i think it was a it was a cool little reversal of that idea and okay. um it felt very satisfying to read mm-hmm. oh yeah this is a really cool story i mean beyond this like really nice subtle world building that is being set up i uh, really enjoy the prose and i uh, really like how this sword is being personified as a like dance partner and i love how that personification is seen through the fights and, and i mean you can even feel that that this main character would be the kind of person to really think of these uh, weapons as not items or or a sort of extension of herself but something that leads something that like kind of kind of follow throughs so yeah i um really really enjoyed this this story through and through the um beginning really really caught me and then we led into a uh and then we led into a fantastic fight fight scene that basically ended with this nice um bit of dialogue and a world building that is really pointing us towards what could possibly happen next so um, I think yeah, this this is a really great story. I would love to uh, see a uh, second entry if um, that is in the the cars. But overall, I just really love this story. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, all right. Up next is Nick Yu with "How Shall They Bathe." Why did you say it that way? I don't know. I'm gonna say it again. <laughs> No, no, I want you to keep it in. <laughs> How shall they bathe? Yeah, perfect. They, they, yeah, you, no, you fixed it that time. That, yeah, thank um, you, thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, okay, so this story has a sort of um, a, a strange Olympics. These four nations come together every year to compete. Um, each nation sets the... Um, they, they get to pick one of the four games that they, they play, and the order changes. Anyway, these are details in the story, but basically mm-hmm. they have a, a championship yeah 
so this basically runs through and 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 does a bit of world building for this um uh contest until um by the end after the these um each of these trials uh, one of the people from one of the uh, tribes the Yadayash or Yadahash um uh wins the contest and then they get the reward um so his name is Tori and um the reward is to go into this uh old cracked fountain which used to ha- have a statue but now doesn't and it's um very much like a like an old relic right you can really imagine sort of the prestige around this sort of like artifact mm-hmm and so he lays down on the fountain, uh, and only the the winner of of the contest every year gets to do this. And um, then the fountain spurts blood and covers him in blood, and he's supposed to arise with a a boon of some sort, some kind of magical ability, mm-hmm. um, or yeah, so, something magical. And and they seem very varied in their in, in what they can be. Um, but as he comes out, he seems like he's he's gotten the boon but then he falters and um he doesn't reveal what the gift is and um people wonder what you know it it must be something bad like why why did he feel bad about it Mm -hmm. but then there's a rumor coming around um that it hadn't given him a gift at all and you can sort of get the implication there it's not the, the the bad thing is not actually just that he doesn't have a gift especially but that maybe it has like stopped giving mm, gifts. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I think this is a really nice story. I mean, I enjoy, uh, when we really go through what the games are, why, why they're being ch- chosen. I think th- those are really great moments of, um, world building. Uh, and I think the story really gains its, its focus towards, uh, towards the end when, uh, this, this sort of victor is uh, being chosen. Um, and I mean, overall, I just really like the setting here. I mean, going from just how sort of long term these uh, games seem to how the fountain itself has seems to have seen so much age, you can you really do get the sense that uh, these games are ancient, that they've been going on forever. And I just really like that. And I like how um, in so little lines this uh, this story is uh, really able to give us scope of this sort of wider world um and i think the the ending is pretty interesting cuz cuz it doesn't give us any answers just just rumors and i mean that's a very interesting way to uh, really end this this story and i mean i think it really does make us make us ask a um a lot of questions and yeah it's just uh, overall a, a really well well written story that that makes you think so i really enjoyed it yeah so one thing um i i really like the story and i think this is a really um good first first draft mm-hmm. in the sense of like I think this is a really interesting idea to explore, and yeah. I think a lot of interesting things are set up here that I think on a on a second draft it could really really glow. Mm-hmm. Um, like, um, I, I I think this final note of like this, you know, maybe maybe it's not a gift at all. I think it's really interesting. I think going back and sort of setting that up as um, a fulfillment to some sort of theme, I think would really really make the story shine. And and maybe going back and like. Um, following Tori from from the beginning or or something of of the sort right instead of um having it uh vague with uh the the full unnamed teams 
right? Mm-hmm. It, it, like, as you said, it, it gets more focus as it goes. Um, but, like, it, it, I, I think there's some glimmers of themes of, like, <clears throat> you know, these nations are relying on on this uh, thing to solve their, their problems, but it's not, like, actually solving their problems or anything like that. They're still clearly competing. This is just, like, a ritualized way for them to, to compete every year. Um and that maybe that's a that's a bad thing, and and this is like a sign of like oh this system's going to collapse or or something of the sort. Mm-hmm. I think, um, yeah, of just like uh, fulfilling some of these um these glimmers of of in really interesting themes that are in here. So, um, you know, I I know we basically say this about every story of like you know consider going back and editing this or or you know writing a, a second version of it. But I would really like to see how this one turns out on a on an edit. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. So, uh, really great job, Nick. To you, and <laughs> <laughs> took you a second to find it. Yeah, <laughs> and um, up next is Sarah Penguin with Stone Cold Gaze. So this is a a, a lovely story. Um, so here, um, to, to to spoil the the reveal about halfway through, the uh, Medusa, the the Gorgon, um, pulls in a uh, deer that she's hunted and starts skinning it and she's like clearly like a horrible monster that we can we can tell not only from her self description of her attributes but just how she like interacts with her world she's dragging this corpse mm-hmm. uh behind her um she slams it down onto a stone slab and and um after she puts the meat in into the cauldron to, to cook, she also just starts eating it raw <laughs> because she's just a monster. Um, but um, then appears um, someone that she has some sort of relationship with. Um, um, this person that they they, they clearly um, love in, in, in some, some way uh, comes in and um, they are blind. Um, and uh, But Medusa shows them affection, you know, like uh, running fingers on their skin and and they do the same um and you know the 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 space between their um wings are like sensitive and you know you can clearly tell that they're very familiar and and um very i think there's definitely an implication of of being romantically Mm -hmm. involved um but um you know, we, we get a bit more of what their dynamic is like with uh, Medusa fighting off, you know, people <laughs> fairly often. <laughs> and then this blind woman selling all the armor and, and everything that those assailants once had. So that's definitely a very fun idea. Um, but outside, uh, eavesdropping is a tiny human, <laughs> as it's described, with a with a blindfold on. And Medusa apparently uh, feeds the, the blind, which we find out, and that also... Um, this orphan wants to be uh, fed as well. And, um, you know, we get some more uh, interaction between the, the, those three of them, uh, Medusa's partner and um, this tiny human and, and Medusa. And um, it's, it's, you know, it's really endearing us to Medusa. She did, like doesn't get human genders and, <laughs> and things, being a, sort of like a mortal snake being. <laughs> um and uh, she basically, we, we end on this on her musing and, and wishing that she could see the light in, in humans' eyes, but unfortunately she can't without them um, getting stoned. Mm-hmm. So 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really dug this story. Uh, I think the this portrayal of Medusa was really, really interesting. I mean, we we see this sort of visceral, monstrous side of her, and and then we kind of see the person, how the person actually has people that uh, she cares about, and it seems that she she has this sort of kind kind heart under her unappealing uh snake-like outside yeah Um, one thing i i really like about that character is that like she's it's not like it's not like the beast in beauty and the beast where it's like he looks like a monster but it's actually he's like a good he's he's a good person the whole time is just his appearance that's like the only thing right medusa here she is she's a like a full-on like uh, murderous yeah. <laughs> callous or not callous but like cruel um, maybe i don't know like definitely like a dangerous monster yeah. right um like she doesn't care about all of those the, the people attacking her that, that she's murdered right uh-huh. um which i mean totally fair right um but like another part of her personality not as like a hidden part but just another part of it is that she's also kind and and really you know is interested in and loves the people that you know are around her right yeah definitely so i i, I like that portrayal of like that sort of being a, a whole being mm-hmm. uh, one little thing is that um her dialogue at some points like i i absolutely loved it right where she's talking about like this tiny human and things like that um that i you know i definitely feel like she's like an immortal snake lady and other times there's a there's a couple of bits where it gets a little bit more colloquial mm-hmm. um like uh there's there's uh, she uses um quite a bit of like uh, contractions and in, in things like i'm a gorgon uh, our entire species is just me and my two siblings um and then the next line is we have no need for your human genders like that one's perfect um uh and then like so, so like this next sentence there are too many differences between humans to keep track of wonderful and then not like most humans want to want to speak before trying to stab Sorry, I'm misreading this. Not like most humans want to speak with me before trying to stab me. So it's like the sort of older phrasing, mm-hmm. um, especially when there's like the, the the contractions are cut across in each word, I think are absolutely, they sound nice and old, right? Like um, if it was phrased, I am a Gorgon, our entire species is made up of just me and um, only I and, and my two siblings. So as like formal as possible, yeah. I think. I see. Yeah, really suits her. Um, so yeah, that's that's my own thing is just to make sure is to um, formalize some of her language because I like I, I adored it when um, she spoke in that way, especially when it you know conflicted with uh, our human expectations, right? Calling the the kid a tiny human, <laughs> as, considering it like genderless, mm-hmm. basically because that's not relevant to her. And um, yeah, no, yeah, I, I love that sort of stuff. So more of that is what I wanted. Definitely, definitely. But I mean, overall, yeah, it's a really strong story and it sets up this really great character of uh, Medusa very, very well. And it uh, uh, and it really does accomplish everything that it sets out to do. So really, really great job, um, Sarah Penguin. And up next is Komato Soup. With is it tomato soup or kamato soup? Kamato soup. Hmm. <laughs> Doesn't say. 
I'll just say it either way. <coughs> and no, no, I. <laughs> that's a that's a tomato tomato joke. Oh, I see. I'm <laughs> very dumb. <laughs> it's fine. No, it's alright. Um, but uh, <laughs> with prices paid. Um. Yeah. So. Um. Yeah. This is a a, a interesting story. Also, tomato soup. Um. It, Either pronunciation, of course, is, is correct, I'm sure. Um, it was previously posting as um, Kamikaze Tomato. So, um, yeah, so we're um, an old poster coming back uh, again as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so here we have Lai, who is, um, he is uh, self-described as, as crippled. Um, he is wearing crutches and he does not feel good about it. We kind of get that this is sort of a recent-ish thing um, that happened to him. So he's still pretty... Uh, like bitter um, about it um, and, and and embarrassed and things, but he's uh, gone to this fountain with a uh, statue of an athlete. This is it is um, inscribed with the athlete, I think. Um, and we sort of uh, get some implication of as he sort of talks to the fountain that this fountain has uh, granted wishes before, right? And especially in a sort of like athlete themed manner uh, often like monkeys pod and, and twisted and, and things and Zolai is is addressing it and we sort of you know our immediate guess is like oh he must be here to wish for something to wish for his um you know ability to be an athlete again back uh but that is not while he why he's here he's actually just talking to it he, he sort of um reveals to us as he throws in coins and they bubble up um and the, the fountain sort of responds by bubbling in, in different ways back um, that another athlete the, the, who was basically second place to lie for so long made a wish to this fountain to steal his ability to run, right? And, and, and things like that. Um, and, uh, w- you know, we sort of presume that lie must be here to, you know, take revenge on him or something, but no. no. And he, as he continues to talk, and we really sort of get this, like, slow plan reveal and mm-hmm. this is sort of like a villain monologue it has the same sort of fulfilling <laughs> feeling of that I, I, I really liked it he keeps throwing in coins just keeps throwing in coins so by the end um we see uh he lies says he doesn't actually blame robbie who only wanted to be better right only he cheated the system but like you know there was a way to cheat the system he blames the fountain instead and so uh, then we we pay attention to those bubbles that came from all the the coins he threw in, um, and uh, the time slows as the fountain is angered and talks directly to him, and Lai explains uh, asks what did he do, and Lai explains that those coins were had some chemicals that were are going to mess up the fountain and stop it from working. The fountain sort of implies that it's going to take its revenge in some way, and Lai says that's fine. That's 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 fair um you know i <laughs> you ruined my life i'm gonna ruin yours fountain and we end here as he as he walks away as the the fountain is um the the fountain's waters grow opaque sloshing with tar um and he spits into the water saying a crippling for a crippling seems fair to me <laughs> and he's made happy by this revenge yeah, yeah. So I think this is a really nice, uh, strange revenge story. Uh, I think the dialogue and the sort of back and forth that Lai is having with this fountain really does make this this story. It's such a uh, creative way to really show them like 
talking to to each other and it really does kind of filled out fill out this i guess slightly supernatural world um and i think my favorite part is uh when we do get this sort of slow re reveal of a uh, lies malice towards uh, uh, towards this this fountain and i do like his sort of reasoning as to why he doesn't just get revenge on on the guy that that wanted to steal his uh running uh uh ability but he's going straight to the source so yeah i think that this is just a very um a very interesting a very interestingly constructed story that uh, mm-hmm. does really take us on this really nice ride that i enjoyed through and through so really great job yeah so in in the comments uh Kermator soup talks about how they had a slightly uh, different original idea for the ending but they just weren't quite sure on how to execute it mm-hmm. um and of course they were running out of time and, and things but um about how they almost included a couple lines about the the fountain god calling in uh some greater forces to judge lie and then lie ending with the sentiment of whatever forces or powers are sent to judge him i hoped they shared a sense of irony um and then the ending lines um and i i think this definitely could have um stayed in there i I don't think at all that more needed to be added (laughs) from the fountain Mm -hmm. Uh, i don't think i I think the fountain only speaking with two lines especially as a sort of like escalation from the bubble talk i think is is really um uh effective Mm -hmm. and i think there is already like a a sentiment of like there's going to be something there's going to be a consequence for this this will not go unanswered right whatever forces it it is is going to do it and i think lie takes it as um robbie the 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 yeah robbie is going to take revenge but it i think it could easily be implied like without anything else being written that um it's other forces doing that yeah um and uh, yeah i think lie basically just like ending with the sentiment of like i don't care you like if i get um you know consequences for this you know it's only going to be the same thing as the fountain getting consequences for this right Mm -hmm. so um yeah i just think that I, I think you could definitely add that in Kameda Soup. Um, I don't think it's necessary. I think this definitely works as, as it is, but um, I definitely think there's room for it very easily. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. So uh, thank you very much for uh, submitting your story. Uh, and our last story for this week is by Nipotin with By the Cafe. Which is also an excerpt from a forthcoming novel by Emmerich Nakamura, mm, nice. which I think is uh, Nipotin's um, one of their pen names. Also, it's kind of like a, a fictional character pen name, I, which I think is an interesting th- thing that they're doing. Mm. Um, so here we are at a cafe, and um, we are we, there's an interesting uh, placement of of narration where it is sort of colored by Nick, this this main character here, uh-huh. it, which is very. Um, uh how how would you describe his his personality um i mean he's an asshole that's that's yeah, one thing but there's a certain kind of word he's to it he's kind of opportunistic but he's also sort of charming in a way yeah but like in the in the like smarmy yeah like he's always right kind of way yeah, charming yeah. and arrogance in this yeah, sense, yeah and pretentious and in so many other things yeah <laughs> and we can definitely we, we tell from like you know the the, the first uh words and we also really very much can tell from the way that um 
Oh, Laya. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that um, the the woman who shows up to to talk to him, that Laya. Uh, talks to him we can very much tell from you know their history and um how you know he's treated her and how you know she is so mad at him um there's wonderful turns of of prose throughout this piece um you know uh he, he's looking at a stone face and um when laya arrives and we can um no I'll, I'll just read the section uh he was nearly done with his with his coffee uh uh, when she arrived and took the seat opposite him, he looked from her stone face of the statue to her stone face of <laughs> Laia. So I think that's a, you know, they, and there's clever things like that all the way through. So they talk and it's a, you know, competitive relationship. And um, finally, Laia gets out of him, you know, why he's here. And uh, Nick says that he's here f- because he wants her to read a play. And um, Laia's husband um, is a uh, play director. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we get like, oh, he's just being an opportunist and lies kind of like grossed out by this, but we can kind of tell there's something deeper than this. Um, and as he talks about it, we sort of get the implication that this play is sort of about them in some sort of way. Um, it's named, um, orchids through the day and, um, Lia loves orchids. They're her favorite. <laughs> And it's sort of about um, over the course of a breakfast, lunch, and uh, dinner um, that these two people who have not seen each other for a very long time, just like they haven't seen each other for a very long time, Mm -hmm. they get together and um, they talk. And we're not entirely sure, you know, all of the details about it. We sort of can understand there's some sort of reconciliation of some way. And that maybe this is how he's doing it with her. Um, You know, he's still an asshole. He's still sort of unapologetically an asshole, but um, he's written something to, in some way, you know, mend the relationship a bit or something Mm -hmm. or or pay back in some way. But at the end here, um, after she leaves and says that she's going to read it, um, and uh, she's, she's still, you know, a little bit standoffish, but not you know, openly hostile, like she was at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, And finally, this this waitress shows up and says, um, I'm sorry to to eavesdrop, but are you a a playwright? And um, Nick doesn't smile. He doesn't respond to this. He just says, now you've made, and now you've made it my problem about her being an eavesdropper. (laughs) And so it's interesting. It's like, just goddamn, he's just such an asshole. (laughs) My goodness. Like, it's such a like, um, a moment of in most other stories would be like is some sort of positive you know reflection on on the theme and thing like that things like that of, of like maybe the character learning something um but here no he's just like Double no down. fuck you <laughs> <laughs> fuck you for listening uh, so it, that's interesting and, and complex character work here oh yeah definitely and i mean i really enjoy the prose in this story uh i think it is very well characterized by this main character of Nick, but at the same time, it does kind of hold its own place and its own voice with within this story. And I mean, overall, I just really like the construction of this story, how the how the dialogue really does flow from from line to to line, and I'm never really confused on uh, who is speaking based off of a, a few. Of those tales, you know, she said, he said, all that jazz. Um, and, I mean, overall, I think, like, from a craft-wise, this this story does work very well. And I and I enjoy um, the, the dynamic that Nick and uh, Laia 
really does have. And I mean, it's, it is apparent throughout. It is apparent through their, through their dialogue. But I do like how much time we are spent uh, trying to understand what, what could have happened while, while also really looking at the future and the whole reason why, why they are there. I just think this story has so many really great uh, parts that are that are working within this story, and I'm really um, I'm really excited to see what this possible novel will hold for us. So overall, really great job. Yeah, Nipitin, if you if you do write that novel, definitely um, <laughs> let us know. Mm-hmm. Um, like one, um, I I think the the pros in this is very very ambitious. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's some parts where it slips up and gets a little confusing, um, but I I think it is trying really hard to do something different. So I definitely get that. Um, you know, after you know this draft, maybe you know reading back over, making sure that everything is is clear, or you know handing handing it off to a beta reader or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, that's a bit much for a do the right thing story. So definitely get why um, that didn't happen. But and, and like I said, this is a very ambitious way to to write this this narrative with this very free flowing um, position of of narrator. Um. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But uh, thank you very much for submitting your story, Nippleton. Yeah, before we before we do the the normal, you know, thinking everything thing, I want to say it's like uh, we we had uh, a lot of writers this mm-hmm. week, and and so many everyone was a was an old name, and it's just really. <laughs> It's really fucking cool to, <laughs> to see y'all improve. Yeah. Like, it's awesome. You know, I, I'm thinking back to some of the first stories that we read of, of each person. And they are, like, unrecognizable compared to <laughs> the, the, the modern, how, how y'all are right now. Mm-hmm. Like, the improvements have been by leaps and bounds. Like, it's huge. Um, I, I, I I'm repeating myself, but, like... Uh, it definitely, you know, I can recognize the, the 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 same sort of voice from beginning and now, but like the the level of like professionalism mm-hmm. and um, polish of of the prose, and then also hugely just, hugely improved. Just the control over your own storytelling mm-hmm. is so impressive, and and to see y'all grow over time is really great. I mean, uh, it it does my my heart good knowing that maybe maybe do the right thing did help y'all in some way like that Mm -hmm. yeah no completely completely like y'all did so good (laughs) my goodness it's uh, i'm stunned Uh um so yeah so so thanks of course to to everyone (laughs) who submitted and and everyone who has submitted in the past you know And, and i can see you know that some of y'all are jumping back in now that it's the new year please keep that up we love to see your work uh um even if we don't read it every single week um you know i feel a little bit better that at least some of the stories that we we didn't talk about this week they were we read their stories anyway from the doof the right thing contest yeah. <laughs> so there's some balance there um i, I understand that wasn't everyone though so mm-hmm. definitely definitely um, so we would like to give a big old do the right thing thank you to everyone who did submit a story this week so thank you very much to ace of sword thank you to captain rhino thank you, nick to you Thank you, Sarah Penguin. Thank you, Calanero985. Thank you, Kamato Soup. Thank you, Matt Said Words. Thank you to Hunt of the Heron. And thank you, Nipotin. And we also want to say thank you to everyone who did leave two or more comments. Leaving comments not only under your own story, but someone else's story can 
can allow you to get all all of your thoughts on your own story into one text and also providing someone else with crucial feedback that can only help them and you become better writers. So, thank you so much to Matt Said Words, Nick Tew, Ace of Sword, Captain Rhino, Haunt of the Heron, and Kamado Soup. Thank you so much for leaving comments. Yeah, y'all are, are fantastic doing such important work. Um, and even if some of those people that didn't leave uh, two comments that still left some, or, or I mean, still left one, if they didn't leave more than two, <laughs> then they left one. Um, uh, it, it, and that's really, really good. It, it, um, and so, um, yeah, going forward, especially if, if more people are writing every week, um, if you want to keep your, your chance of getting selected every week up, uh, definitely leave those comments. It's good for you. It's good for the people that you're doing it for. Um, and it's good for us. It makes us feel good, too. So <laughs> we really appreciate everyone that did that. Mm-hmm, exactly. If you want to be like all of our wonderful writers and submit your story to Do the Right Thing, you can do that by going to Reddit on slash r slash do the right thing. All you have to do is sit down for 30 minutes and write a complete short story using three or four words from that week. Uh, that's right. And, um, of course, we also have a, a challenge for this week, and we'll get into the, um, this one at the end. I'm actually really excited about this mm-hmm. one. Um, I should have mentioned that at the beginning, that there's an exciting challenge. But, oh, well, hopefully everyone listened all the way through. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it, so if you want to see the words as soon as they come out, the best way to do that would be to follow us on Twitter and hit that bell at RightThingCast. Um, to see uh, the words as soon as they come out or um, to be on Discord and, and just uh, check that channel. Turn on notifications. Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, go ahead. Uh, you can also email us at rightthinkcast at gmail.com. Of course, you can you know send us whatever you want. You can send us hate mail, <laughs> fan mail, fan fiction, fan art, fan 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 mail. Picks. That's right, fan. Wait, no, oh. I don't like what nope. that might be implying. Oh yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, please don't send nudes to the right thing. Please, cast but email, please. Uh, if you do want to tell us how your day is going, I would really like to read that. That's right. I will respond to that. <laughs> of course, and also if you want to support us and everyone else in Doof Media, you can do that by donating to the Doof Media Patreon. All you have to do is donate ten dollars or more per month, and and you will get access to the Doof Media Discord along with really fantastic bonus content. Uh, that's right. You know, there's so much going on in the Doof Network every single week. Um, you know, Pale Reflections is is going strong. I, I love Pale so much. I had uh, I was driving and it had like three ideas for the Pale fanfic <laughs> stuff, which I will never do. You should. Probably. Though. We'll see. Maybe. Hey, maybe next it, week. Maybe I I just want to play a pale role playing game so bad, mm. um, but uh, good news actually that the that's uh, that's a thing the um in 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 pale reflections they have done a couple episodes of uh, a pale RPG or pale inspired RPG oh, nice. packed verse packed verse inspired RPG but it's set in the future so um that's a that's a really cool thing to listen to and it's got some doof community members besides Ruben and Elliot in it as well and of course there's so much else you know mm, what to say that wonderful podcast covering the OC going strong with uh um Scott and Elise um who are also going through so many exciting uh life things I know they mm-hmm. uh, a while ago got a new house and and many other things so they must be very stressed out but also very excited mm-hmm. um and, and yeah, so many other things. The, the Doofcast, um, uh, Kingslingers, 
Um, and of course, all those other podcasts in the past that you may or may not have listened to. Maybe maybe we'll talk about more of that more of that um, la- next week. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. We're all right. I think it's prime time to roll on into next week's words, don't you think? Uh, that's right. Um, do we want to talk about the challenge first or after? Sure, we can talk about the challenge now. What is the challenge? All right. So um, I'm finally planning to do a story next week. We're not going to be pulling out... Um, a, a public domain story Gasp. although will i make the story public domain if it's bad i'll make it public domain mm. if it's good it's not public domain <laughs> um <laughs> i will file a, a copyright <laughs> um we're gonna be finally doing that that challenge that we've been talking about for a long while um which we're calling tracing i don't know if it already has a name or something like that yeah but, but tracing the, sounds right tracing works i think you know in the same way that an artist will um you know just for practice trace over uh, another work or an image or something like that um to um find it, the the challenge here for the, the the tracing challenge is to find a section of prose from an author you admire um a section of prose that you really like you really like how it flows and and sounds and you want to see how how they do that you take that, um, ideally a couple, at least one page, and, and really as much as you are comfortable with, and write it out by hand. Just copy it down word for word out by hand. So the idea is that by um, writing it out like this, you really feel how that language is written and sort of take that into yourself and um, get a lot more familiar for how that, that prose works. Mm-hmm. Um, and doing it by typing, I think it also would work, but I don't think it would work nearly as well. I really do recommend, uh, writing it out by hand. And then after you do that and get really familiar with, um, an author's style, um, go and try to replicate it. Um, try to, try to copy their voice in, in some of your own writing in, in the do the right thing challenge or in, or in something else. I, I, there's multiple ways that you can take this. Um, definitely, uh, I think doing it for the do the right thing challenge, I think it's, it's a really good idea. You know, just at the, at the top, say what author you're doing it mm-hmm. from. Um, or uh, another way to do it is to uh, read a section in a book. Um, let's say it's 10 pages long, write out three pages of it, and then try to write the rest of that scene or, or, or chapter in that voice, but with in your own perspective, mm-hmm. you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like recreate it, but not word for word, but in that voice and sort of, not not to see how close you can get, but just following along with with ooh, following the track of what the the author was writing. Um, so yeah, and, and if you have any other twists on that idea, you do carry them out. I think this is a really um, interesting one to do. There's a lot of authors you could practice from. Anyone with a distinctive pro style, I think, is definitely worth it. Anyone you admire, um, you know, it, there's people on the podcast that you could definitely do. Um, there was a Kate Copen last week. I think this mm-hmm. is a pretty good example. Of course, you could try Edgar Allan Poe or Lovecraft. My Angelou. Um, my Angelou's yeah is, is an example I give on there. Or Virginia Woolf, another one. Or Hemingway, uh, Cormac McCarthy, um, for more of the um the shorter and and terser writing mm-hmm. styles. Um, yeah. So so give it a go and maybe do more than one. Um, I I think this is definitely a, a good a good thing to practice oh definitely definitely and i mean i am very e- i'm very eager to see what y'all pick and, and what you bring next week and speaking of next week next week's words are brick herb penny and equipped that's right so uh the first one brick, brick. 
Um, so that is a, a solid, um, usually rectangular-shaped building material, mm-hmm. but it can also be used as a metaphor for um, other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone can be built like a brick, someone very solid and strong. Someone can punch um, like a brick? Is that a wait? Is that yeah, a thing? It is. All right, <laughs> you could punch a brick, brick and break it like mm-hmm. um, those martial artists. Even do. though they definitely do perforate those bricks beforehand, but that's fine. That's lies and slander. <laughs> I think you can get sued for that. Uh, how now? How now? No one can sue me. The next word is herb mm. or herb, herb, if you like. Yeah. Herb is a name uh, short for Herbert, Herbert I believe. Yes. An herb is a type of plant, usually medicinal or um, culinary in some, some sort mm-hmm. of way. So uh, some op- options there. A um, penny, uh, which is a, the smallest denomination of, of coin in America, now that the half penny has been discontinued. <laughs> for quite some um, time. But you could, uh, it could also be a name as mm-hmm. well. Penny? Or you could use it in the saying, in the, the saying, <laughs> in for a penny, in for a pound, in the which is uh, the notion of, like, if you are uh, partially invested in the situation, you might as well be completely mm-hmm. invested in the situation. Um, and then e equip which is to i think we've used that word we before have, yeah. god damn this this <laughs> uh word generator um now the problem is we do the word generator thing and it doesn't have a way for it to make sure that it doesn't do it doesn't have any memory of of the words it's picked before for us obviously yeah. and we don't usually remember <laughs> <laughs> so. i mean hey no one no one can blame us we have done 93 going on 94 of these things mm-hmm. and it's a different combination mm-hmm. So it's going to be yeah, different. There's a different idea. Uh, but to to put something on, or you can also say equipment, which is something else that you put on or, or use in the mm-hmm. situation. I, you know, it's I think it's interesting, at least with the first three, brick, herb, and penny, I definitely have like a vibe in yeah, mind. Um, there's sort of like a color palette here, you know, greens and, and browns. Yeah, green, brown, you know, and tans, reds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's, that's interesting. I have no idea if the stories will be much similar, but I, that's an interesting idea. Mm, yeah. So... Alexandra, what exact story are you going to write next week? Great question. So, I'm going to write about um, Herbert, the 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 Mason. He's his name is Herbert Mason. Mm. He's a Mason, and um, so he he puts together not houses, but um, public bathrooms. That's that's the thing. He puts together public bathrooms, uh, brick by brick, laying them together, um, and uh, he has a he has a special thing he does um, when he is using his um, his masonry equipment, right? You know, lay- putting a brick down, lay- layering on the cement. He has a special trick, um, a uh, Herbert Mason line trick to lay a penny down in between every brick Mm. and he does that and then a thousand years in the future after america is long gone some archaeologists discovered it and they took out all the pennies and they became very rich because they there there wasn't many pennies in in the future and um they um really happy about that Mm, nice nice okay you know it, th- that seems like a very feel-good story you know something that the whole family can go and watch mm-hmm. and now i'm gonna write it in the lovecraftian Ooh, style okay okay 
Um, for my story, uh, I'm going to make National Treasure 3, but in the style of Poe. You know, so, you know, it'll be a little bit dark, a little bit drab, a little bit moody. But I really do think that uh, we will, it will be the perfect role for Nicolas Cage to uh, fully mm-hmm. perform. So basically how this how this movie starts is that he is looking over his uh, wife's huge collection of, of coins from quarters to nickels to ancient dollops and pennies. Well, you see, he is he is looking at this one coin, a very strange coin cast in gold that has the picture of an herb, but behind the herb is the pyramids from from Egypt, all of them missing the top section. So, of of course, Nick Cage being being Nick Cage, he he hits the town. He 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 is he is equipped with with his boots, his a whip, and his nerdy hacker friend that just follows him everywhere. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, they are basically hitting every national bank looking for the missing pieces to the puzzle of <laughs> why this coin is missing certain sections that should be there. And this huge journey leads leads them all the way to to the to the steps of the White House where, they have to break it down to find a hidden brick from 1897 that that is cast in in gold and holds what is missing from those coins wow i really thought there was going to be some sort of synergy or like uh sort of like a like a team up thing with the current events you know like he has to he has to use a distraction he has to incite an alt right oh, mob to uh oh. attack the the white house so he can sneak by i think at the same I think, time i think, I that, think that would be you just wrote the final act of my movie yeah let, let me call let me let me go ahead and call yeah, disney yeah, yeah, yeah. i think disney wants to mm-hmm. do this call up call up disney uh, I I have Nick Cage on a speed dial. He's a he's a good old uh, family friend, and I'm pretty sure he will be down because he'll do pretty much anything. Um, he really yeah, will. Yeah. He really will. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I think uh, if if we can get this this ball rolling, maybe we can start production in uh, late 2021, so that in uh, early 2022, uh, Nick Cage can star once again on the on the silver screen for the thrilling and fantastical final act of the uh, National Treasure series. National Treasure mm-hmm. 2. That's what we'll, well call it's, it. Well, it's the third one, but okay. We'll call it National Treasure mm, 2. Yeah, because the second one is just City of Gold. So it's a, so there hasn't been a, a National Treasure 2 yet. Yeah, Yeah. It well, it'll be National Treasure T-O-O. Oh, oh, you know what? Yeah. That... Might just be the right thing to do. I think it will. Whatever you do. What was that? I'm making a stop.